Welcome back to the National Rural Education Association podcast, The Rural Voice. Is uh, Like always, we're here with our, our excellent producer and uh, champion of all causes, Chris Silver, Dr. Chris Silver, and then our economic development education rural, actually remote rural today, uh, Dr. Jared Bigham. Uh, guys, great to be back on with you again today. And uh, it is our pleasure to introduce our guest, author of a new book that was, uh, I'll let him kind of go in more details, but I'm just going to throw this out there, A Rural Guide for All Rural America, I think. And I'll throw that out there to Matt. So Matthew Hogland is our guest. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's great to be here. And I certainly appreciate that. The title of the book is Think Small, A Rural, A, a uh, Millennial's Guide to Building a Meaningful Life in Rural America. Uh, but as I've told uh, uh, everyone on any interview that I've been a part of, you can buy the book at any age. Uh, so uh, even if you're not a millennial, please feel free to go buy a copy of the book. Yeah, and, and one of the things we'll add on our show when we publish is we'll put a link to some folks folks can buy the book. So we'll help you out on our end as well. Oh, great. Thank you. So, Matt, tell us about yourself, kind of where you grew up, where you went to college, and kind of what led you in that role to go to move to a rural uh, town. Yes, sir. So I grew up in uh, actually a pretty rural uh, area of Western North Carolina, born and raised in uh, Rutherford County, which is about halfway between Charlotte and Asheville. I went to school at Western Carolina University. And then after college, kind of had my sights set on uh, moving to Asheville. It's a city of about 90,000 and a metro area of about 400,000. And uh, just a, a very charming, quirky, uh, a cool little uh, city for, especially for millennials. You good know, breweries, culture. good breweries. Yeah, excellent Asheville. breweries. Yeah, breweries, restaurants, uh, hiking, uh, outdoor activities, you name it. Uh, the culture there has often been compared to uh, Austin, Texas. And so I lived there for a few years after college. That's actually where I met my wife. Uh, so that, that was maybe the best part of living there. Uh, but she had some family here in central North Carolina. Uh, they own a 90 acre farm in a very rural County called, uh, named Caswell County, which is right on the Virginia line. And we had been dating for a few years. Uh, we were about to get engaged and she didn't know that, but, uh, she kind of sprang a question on me one day and said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to move back and be close to my family and move to Yanceyville, which is where we live today. And it's a town of only about 2000 people. And so, you know, like I said, I, I was really enjoying kind of a, a hipster lifestyle in Asheville and moving to Yanceyville was a big culture shock and I didn't know what to expect. But to our delight over the years, we have actually uh, carved out a pretty great life uh, for ourselves uh, since we moved here. We got involved locally with boards and commissions. My wife started her own business uh, as a flower farmer. Um, we bought a house for $39,000, uh, which is impossible anywhere. Uh, I got hired on as the county planner uh, for the county, even though I had never had a job in local government. And so uh, that's that's kind of my life in a nutshell. But those past five years of moving here and kind of building the type of life that the average millennial wants to our surprise in a very small town is really what led me to write the book. Jared, I'm sure you got a thought on this. Yeah, no, I, I thought... Um, uh, Dr. Pratt was one that suggested I read the book, and it was fascinating to me, partly because I live very close to the areas you're talking about, so it had a little bit more of a colloquial uh, frame for me that I could put some actual uh, 
places in my mind that you were describing and that you uh, were talking about. So I, I think to me, uh, not being a millennial, I'm, I'm 43, so I'm above the cut line. Uh, I have, I've had different experiences with millennials in, in some of the urban areas that I've worked and had offices. And, and I, I often would say when I would hire a millennial, I'd say, look, I know your first instinct in about a month is going to be to start looking for your next job. And, and somebody might offer your job and you're thinking, okay, I've got to get that next stepping stone. And it seemed to be a trend with a lot of millennials. It's like, boom, I'm going next job, next job, next job. And I think in a rural area, that's, it's more of a challenge to do something like that. So have you thought about or discussed with, with people that, dynamic that I think plays out a lot in urban areas with millennials and, and how they, you know, that's, they can't really do that if you come to a rural area. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And actually, before I was hired on as the county planner, I worked as a recruiter in the uh, construction and development industry, and we had clients all over the country. And that was, uh, for those hiring managers, that was their biggest fear as well, is, you know, obviously they wanted somebody that was young and energetic and that had a college degree, but their fear with hiring a millennial is, you know, they might be there for a couple of years and then bounce on over to uh, the next job. So um, I think that is one uh, cultural touchstone of millennials, you know, and and I've had this question uh, as well. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, my book may not be for every millennial. Uh, my book is, is probably, you know, honestly quite, uh, targeted towards millennials who do want to settle down, who do want to find a job that's long-term, who do want to start a business and, and grow it to fruition and start a family and own a house and, and build out that kind of a lifestyle. So, you know, if somebody sees themselves as, uh, the type of person that kind of jumps around, jobs and doesn't really um, value, you know, kind of settling down and uh, doing those other things that I mentioned. If my book is not for them, then I'm, I'm perfectly content with that. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a cultural touchstone of, of my generation. You know, another, another thing that, um, that my generation is well known for is our uh, college debt. You know, we have more college debt than any other generation we do desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and something meaningful and really have an impact. And that's one of the things that I do talk about in my book too, is it's a lot easier to really have an outsized impact and to make a difference uh, when you're in a small town or a rural community, as opposed to a big city where you just kind of blend into the crowd and become another number. So uh, maybe those job hopping millennials should rethink their strategy, right? (laughs) I, and I think that's a good point. And, and, and I pulled a couple of things from, I guess, the early chapters when you were talking about your journey. And one of the things I pulled was, and, and I'm going to hit both of them, then I'll put it in some form of a question. Maybe not, but we'll get to it. Uh, you talked about the volunteerism kind of helped pad your resume, which I think that's an important point. It's a selling point to your your generation your and, and, the, and I guess your tribe, the group that you kind of represent in that rural community. And the other part, and I think this is important, is understand the context of rural understand the place and what place and what was fascinating to me was you talked about the organizational history of your county or your city talk a little bit more about being involved and kind of getting rolling your sleeves up and getting into work in that community absolutely yeah so uh as i've joked i have always been a big political nerd and so i'm always the type of guy you know watching c-span and going to public meetings and all that stuff so 
as soon as we moved to Yanceyville, one of the first things that I did was uh, that I went to a county commission meeting. And coming from Asheville, where you have a lot of activists and you have a lot of political involvement, it was a big culture shock to go to a county commission meeting. And I was literally one of only about four or five people. And so after the initial yeah. shock, I said, you know, it's certainly it can't be like this always. Uh, there, there's got to be more people involved. And if there's not, maybe it's a great opportunity for me to get involved. And so we did, you know, my wife and I got involved with various boards and commissions ranging from nonprofits that helped out uh, underprivileged youth all the way to the historical association, to the local farmer's market and kind of everything in between. So, you know, like I talk about in the book, it has a dual purpose. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with highlighting the dual purpose. Obviously, you get involved and you take a leadership role and you and you become engaged. And those are um, highlights that you can add to your resume. But more importantly, it allows you to genuinely have a positive impact on your community. And that's really the reason that I wrote about it. As I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the cultural touchstones of my generation is we do want to have a meaningful impact on our community, but a lot of people don't really know how. And one of the great things about uh, moving to a rural area and getting involved is you will immediately be one of the more younger and technologically savvy people involved, but obviously you can have that type of uh, meaningful impact on your community as well. And and I I would be interested in your take on this, but I, as someone that lives in a very rural community and, and people that move in and want to be active in the community and, and are surprised, like I, I exactly know what you mean about five people at a county commission meeting, I've been to school board meetings where there have been zero people in attendance. So they take 10 minutes. And when some when outsiders come in, especially if they don't have an accent, and of course I've got to triple the accent, but if if they they have a northern accent or no accent at all, people look at them a little uh cockeyed, you know, like what's this person wanting? Why are they wanting to help? Why are they here? What are they and so I think establishing those relationships, especially what I've seen has been successful. If you can ever find that one person in the community that they can connect with, that sort of takes them around, introduces them to people, that helps a lot. Because rural communities can sometimes be a little inward looking, you know, and, um, but once, you know, once they get to know people, they can be great. You know, it's, it's some of the best people in the world. So what's your yeah. thoughts on that? I think that's an excellent point and something I talk about a little bit in the book. And I would say if you are a newcomer to a small town or a millennial who wants to move to a small town and get involved, you know, start slow and be humble and realize that the people there have probably been working on the issues that you're identifying that you would like to work on. They've probably been working on those issues for the last 10 or 15 years as well. And so they're probably just as frustrated as you are that they would like to see more economic development or they would like to see new initiatives or, or something like that. Um, I, I'll give you a personal story uh, that I think uh, worked very well, uh, eventually worked very well to my benefit. So I mentioned going to that early county commission meeting and I was maybe only one of four or five people there. I kept going to county commission meetings. I got to know the county commissioners. I got to know the county attorney. And I actually built a pretty good rapport with our county manager. Well, there was a vacancy on a newly created uh, historical and preservation committee that came up. And because I had established these relationships, I applied and they appointed me to that committee. 
And that com- on the committee also sat the county manager. And at the very first meeting, uh, when they were choosing who's going to be the chair, who's going to be the vice chair, who's going to do all of the roles and responsibilities, I volunteered to be the secretary because everybody always hates to be the secretary. Nobody wants to take minutes and then be responsible. Got that for, right, brother. Nobody Got wants to be responsible for, for keeping the minutes. Uh, and I think I had my laptop with me uh, that day. So I said, you know what? I'm new here. Uh, I'm willing to do the work. I'm, I'm going to show these people that I'm willing to do the work. I already have my computer. I will just volunteer to be the secretary. And so I just pulled my computer out, started typing up minutes, and it really was not uh, a big, uh, a big hindrance for me to do that. But being on that committee and being willing to volunteer in a capacity that other people didn't want, I'm willing to take on the kind of the grunt work. You know, I think that was impressive to the county manager. And when the county planner position came available, the county manager pulled me aside and told me about it. He interviewed me for the job, and then I ended up getting the job. So, you know, just getting involved and being willing to do some of the stuff that others don't want to, um, and then can, and then building those relationships can really, really pay off down the road. And I want to th- I want to ask Chris to step in because I know he's a little different background than us as far as his education and some things. So, Chris, you got anything you want to add to the conversation? I mean, my, you know, I've got an IT background in my other life besides being a statistician and an academic. So I can I can definitely understand the sort of throwing yourself into the hard work. That's actually, I'd say, probably half the promotions I've ever had in my life were because I did exactly that. So I, I appreciate that, Matt. I mean, sometimes that's the way you make a name for yourself is just go own the crap nobody else wants to do. So, yeah. Uh, what do you, hey, Matt, what do you do in a situation, though, where, so, you know, you always speak to a lot of leaders. Um, what do you do in a situation where the data says one thing, but the leaders want to do something else? Like, how do you handle that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I think that's come up a bit, uh, you know, as the, I'll tell you from personal experience now as the county planner, uh, I have a very nerdy day to day job in you know studying ordinances and studying state law and figuring out what we do in in a zoning capacity, for example, that complies with that. and so i'll sh- I'll show up to the meetings and say, "Well, you know general statute one sixty d dash seven o four says this, and the county commissioners kind of look at me and they go, "Well, you know, but my constituents uh, really aren't in favor of that." And so, you know, personally, I may want something else, but at the end of the day, you also have to recognize that, you know, if somebody is in an elected position or if they are your mayor or if they are the chair of a, a board or an organization that you just joined, then you, you have to respect that authority. And so, you know, if you're somebody who's serious about being engaged in a community and really having a, an impact, then, you know, the types of changes that you want to implement, it might be, you know, five or 10 years or 15 years down the road uh, until you can uh, really be in, be in that type of leadership position and institute things, uh, those types of changes, exactly how you would like to see them. So, you know, there is, a, I think, a, a great degree of humility and patience uh, that goes along with, with this type of community involvement. And honestly, I think that's rural or urban or, or anywhere you go. One thing that I have seen uh, be really successful in rural communities is somewhat an outsourcing model. I know 
a specific example, there was a, a company in Nashville that was actually paying for uh, IT workers to get their degree because there's just such a need for IT workers in Nashville in that area. I knew it too, actually. They've been doing yeah. the same thing here. And so they they would pay for these works, which they were millennials, and they would um, they had a salary like seventy five thousand dollars, and they found that uh, after you know six months or so or a year, they could make a little bit more money. So they would go on to another company. They're like, man, this model's not working. We can't retain these folks, and and so they opened an office in a very rural part of Northwest Tennessee in Martin, Tennessee, and designed the office to be, I guess what you call millennial friendly, you know, one of these where you can bring your dogs to work and there's a gym right beside it. They gave them a gym membership and, and uh, paid them the $75,000. But to your point earlier, $75,000 goes a lot farther in a little rural community than it does in a Nashville type city. And so they were buying, you know, in, in Nashville, it, there, it was hard to get a, a two-bedroom apartment on that salary. But in that small rural community, they were buying a three-, four-bedroom home and, uh, you know, still having money left over to go eat out every night and things like that. So um, that model, uh, outsourcing to rural communities, I think is awesome. And I, and I try to push that anytime I'm – talking to people like you, county planners or county executives, county mayors, uh, to offer them space to do this because they, I think that's very attractive to the, the folks that are interested in your model, your book. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, obviously a fascinating story and an excellent example. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really innovative things like that happening all over the country that most people don't ever really know about. You know, if it doesn't make the national news or um, the headline on a big city newspaper, then then you probably don't see it. Um, and um, in doing research for the book, I came across a small town in eastern Tennessee. You guys may be familiar with Irwin, Tennessee. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. And I was fascinated to learn that Irwin seemed to be kind of this small, struggling town uh, where I believe the railroad had stopped uh, coming through. And so they were kind of searching for a new way to kind of rebrand themselves and draw in a younger uh, residency and all that good stuff. And so the mayor put together a, a committee of millennials and it was kind of an open-ended task of help us figure out a, what we can do uh, that would be innovative in an economic development capacity and B what is, what are some things that you might like to see to attract millennials? So they grabbed a hold of some of the low-hanging fruit, like you know, breweries and distilleries, and getting rid of the um, uh, the ABC laws. Uh, I think it was a dry county or a dry town at the time. And then one really innovative thing that they did, apparently in that town, some a hundred or so years ago, the circus came through, and one of the elephants from the circus uh, broke free and attacked and uh, unfortunately killed a member of the crowd. And so the next day, they executed the elephant in town. And so for like a hundred years, this town was just known for uh, this elephant <clears throat> that went that went on a rampage and then died in town. And so the millennials kind of grabbed that, the millennial committee grabbed the symbolism of the elephant and rebranded it into um, uh, kind of a marketing tool where they had, you know, statues of elephants all throughout their downtown. And it became kind of a tourist 
uh, attraction and they had uh, involvement from the schools and the kids would paint elephants and have a contest and they incorporated, incorporated it in their annual uh, festival and farmer's market and things of that nature. So yeah, there's a, there's a ton of uh, innovation uh, happening all across the country. A lot of it I probably didn't even get to in writing this book, but, uh, but it's out there. And again, I think it's for, for folks who are in an established position of leadership, it's a great lesson to borrow from those examples and incorporate it in your town. And then for millennials who aren't sure what their next step is, just know that that type of innovation is out there. And if you move to a rural community or a small town, then you could probably be a part of something like that that would lead to a big difference in that town. Yeah. Okay. And, but let me, let me stop and say, fun fact on that uh, elephant, I, as a Tennessean uh, in, in the trivia buff, her name was Murderous Mary, and she was hung from a crane with a humongous logging chain. So that wow, that's that's a a great um, visual for our young <laughs> listeners out there. Yeah, that's um, that puts our rating a little bit differently. But anyway, um, t- talk to us about as we look at COVID and and the shutdown and and distance and remote learning. Talk to us about your kind of your work that you're doing with Connect Caswell and and the broadband connectivity in your area and how it's an economic driver. Absolutely, yeah, huge component of uh, our county and and rural America in general. So uh, as the county planner, uh, one of my responsibilities is to review all new applications for cell towers uh, that come into the county. And so that was one of the first official responsibilities that I uh, studied up on and uh, took on as the county planner. And one issue that kind of piggybacks nicely with that is obviously internet connectivity. And so Caswell County remains one of the least connected counties in the state of North Carolina. Uh, About the same time that I was hired on as the county planner, the North Carolina General Assembly uh, passed a grant um, line item in the, I believe believe it was the 2018 North Carolina budget, which allocated $10 million in broadband grants for uh, qualifying counties. And so I had been in the job for a few months and had um, uh, gotten a pretty good sense of, um, uh, you know, cell tower development and regulation and things of that nature. And I had become aware of this grant and I went to my boss and I said, Hey, I've got an idea for an initiative where I think we can qualify for some grant funding if we, um, if we put forth the effort. And so we had uh, surveys, we had uh, data that proved that internet deployment would benefit small businesses and farms. We had letters of community support uh, from uh, other businesses and organizations throughout the community. And we packaged all that up. And the way that the grant application worked is we collected a lot of the data and a lot of the information on the local level, but we actually gave that information to a broadband provider and the broadband provider applied for the grant funding. So. Long story short, in the spring of 2019, our governor announced a series of uh, awards and uh, a total of $1.5 million in broadband uh, expansion funding was awarded on behalf of Caswell County. So again, that money goes to the broadband provider. It doesn't come to the county, uh, but the, um, the award has been given and well, unfortunately, we are still waiting on the broadband provider to demonstrate matching funds, and there's some debate going back and forth about when the funds will be released and exactly what will happen. But um, uh, we were able to, uh, through a lot of incredibly hard work uh, from citizens here in the county, we were able to secure that uh, that grant funding. 
Um, another initiative, as I mentioned on the cell tower front, and this is actually probably a, an easier uh, initiative for others to replicate. When I uh, took the job, um, uh, in addition to broadband, uh, cell tower connectivity in the county is pretty weak as well. But I would hear from a lot of residents and say, oh, man, you know, I wish they put a cell tower on my property because I can't even make a phone call at my house. And so I thought, why don't I reverse the process instead of having the tower developer try to find the property owners? Why don't I create a database of property owners who I know want to have are open to having a tower on their land and then make that available to uh, the, the cell tower developers? And so I had a process where um, our, our property owners could fill out a, a one-page land development form uh, where if they were willing to have a, a tower on their property, we took a look at their location, how close are they to an existing tower, what type of setbacks would apply, would they need to have a vegetative buffer uh, of trees and fencing and things of that nature. A lot of that metadata that your cell tower developers collect, we just went ahead and collected it for them, put it in a spreadsheet, and we have made that available to any you know, cell tower developer, builder, consultant, Verizon, AT&T, you name it, that is uh, now publicly available data. So they can immediately find uh, plausible locations for new cell towers in our county just by giving me a phone call. So has that worked out fairly well? You had some, some uh, increase in towers? We have, yeah. So since I've been the county planner, we have uh, permitted uh, two new cell towers now, and they were in some of the uh, worst coverage areas in the county. That's good news. That's, that's uh, you know, speaking of, of, of the coverage and everything, what, what are you seeing, I guess, locally, the schools? Are they still struggling with home connectivity with their uh, remote learning? Yeah, they, they struggle a lot. Uh, you know, when you go to the schools, obviously the schools are wired and uh, you have great connectivity. But when those kids go home, uh, it's really hit or miss. Uh, when I was involved uh, very heavily in the in the Connect Caswell 2020 process, I would have folks reach out to me and say, um, you know, I'm a school teacher, but I have to drive to the next county and sit in the McDonald's parking lot just to have Internet and do my lesson plans. And uh, and that's just terrible. So. You know, we also apparently had a program here in the county where all 8th to 12th graders got a free uh, Chromebook, but obviously <laughs> when they took it home, it just yeah. became a paperweight because if they don't have any internet. <laughs> well, I, I've seen that dozens of times, dozens, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So it's a real struggle. I mean, short of grant funding or short of uh, some benevolent uh, billionaire out there who can just shower money on a small town or a rural area, it is a real, real struggle to figure out innovative ways to get um, uh, to get people connected to the internet. You know, that, that's an interesting point, and maybe this could be your next book uh, to, to ignite some angel donors out there, but I've seen a couple of these literally these billionaires um and there's one just five minutes from my home a small town in on the georgia tennessee line this guy came in he's from california and the in the tech industry and has a lot of dispensable wealth <laughs> and he's he's bought up the majority of the town and i completely refurbished it and i keep trying to encourage the school district i reach out to this guy because that that's community impact. I mean, you can have economic impact is one thing that does help the community and the community grow, but like really 
entrenching yourself in the community is helping the education system. And they, they've they yet to do that, or at least, you know, I, I think we go about asking for money the wrong way. Sometimes we ask for these, uh, can you give us a scoreboard or can you do, you know, buy some laptops versus uh, let's do it, have an ongoing partnership through a foundation or something like that where we can really continue to support the school in multiple ways. So let's, let's, won't you write that book or, or I'll ghostwrite it for you or something and, and we can maybe spur some, some billionaires out there start investing in rural America. That's right. Yeah. Just a, a public uh, social media shaming campaign to get uh, Jeff Bezos and Mike Bloomberg and these guys just to drop some money into a small town. Yeah, I think I think I actually joked with my wife whenever Mike Bloomberg dropped out of the presidential race uh, just this year, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, that was 2020 when Mike Bloomberg ran for president. <laughs> um, you know, the the hundred and gosh, what did he spend? One hundred and twenty billion dollars and he got like half a percent of the vote or something like that. You know, I was joking with her. He could have spent one percent of that money and like quadrupled the Caswell County budget <laughs> for a year. <laughs> but, but in terms of if he wants to have an impact on society, you know, instead of a failed presidential campaign, literally, I mean, literally, imagine if, if somebody like Michael Bloomberg just showed up to a random small town one day and said, hey, everybody, here's $100 million. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, and, and, you know, obviously he is free. Anybody who wants to is free to spend their money the way that they choose and run for president, run for office. You know, go nuts. This is not a political statement or, or me trying to be overly critical. But um, I just think in the broader context of if you are the type of person who wants to have a, a meaningful impact, you know, a fruitless campaign doesn't get you anywhere. But yeah. literally, you know, injecting this money into some really uh, struggling communities or, or struggling families or something like that. I mean, that would be revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. I think for whatever reason, foundations gravitate to the urban core and, and I've seen, I've, I've, like I said before, I've had offices and I've done work in urban communities uh, in in collective impact work. And so the, definitely the urban core needs that support. But for whatever reason, you know, there's a lot of socioeconomic distress out there in rural communities that could benefit from some of these foundations. And they're just not, those same dollars are not out there. It's, it's, um, it's it's a shame. Yeah, but don't you think some of those foundations uh, they look for to making a diverse impact, and they assume that all rural communities are white. And I think that's an assumption that obviously we try to change that narrative. But I think that's a part of this as well. That hey, if you want to make an impact on diverse populations and you know really help with inequities, rural is where you need to go. Yeah. Yeah. And one conversation that the digital divide conversation is starting to make that more prominent uh, because when people there, there's definitely connectivity issues in urban areas as well, but the, the rural uh, connectivity issues really start bubbling up coming to the forefront. We just did a campaign in Tennessee around that and our Senator Lamar Alexander, he's very passionate about trying to get, some funding before he leaves office uh, this year for uh, connectivity and broadband expansion. And so I think that may be one of the things that puts rural America on the map more in these conversations 
is this digital divide really that the pandemic has pushed because of inequities in education that are going to get even wider and not just in education, but in economic development, all these other areas as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and, and Jared, I think that segue into your your finishing question is a good one, a good time for that. Right? All right. So this is this is the question all our guests get, Matt. So um, we'll even give you at least 1.5 seconds to, to think about an answer. Um, if you were Harry Potter or had Harry Potter's wand, let's say that you had Harry Potter's wand, and you could wave it to do one major thing in in rural America, what would you use that wand for? And put an asterisk on it, Jared. Tell them why you cannot ask. Yeah, you can't you can't use the wand for more waves. You know, that's the everybody wants to try to do that. So you get one wave of the wand. <laughs> wow. That's an incredible question. I definitely was not prepared for that. And unlike a lot of millennials, uh, I'm not really big into Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, this is in the podcast, in the podcast. I'm not even millennial and I'm into Harry Potter. Of course, I got five kids, so. <laughs> um, this is probably not going to be a great answer, but I would say that if, uh, if you could wave a wand and um, uh, give uh, folks in rural America uh, the, the expertise or the opportunity or um, uh, an instant way to kind of identify what is unique about them and how they can market that to the world, then I think that would really go a long way. You know, obviously education will be a huge thing, connectivity, a lot of those things that we talked about. But, you know, the way that the, that the world is moving, you know, every town has a story, every town has something unique. And I think that um, people in general and especially millennials look for uh, experiences uh, rather than conveniences uh, per se. So if your town has something unique that you can really market to the world, that you can really uh, show yourself and draw new people in and uh, revitalize your economy, then I, I would hope that they can identify that and really use it uh, to their maximum ability. That's actually a great answer. I was yeah. expecting internet connectivity to everybody or something, but that actually that could support multiple things if, if communities were empowered to do that. So great answer. And well, I, my, my first thought was just wave a wand and they all buy a copy of my book. Uh, <laughs> but that probably would have been inappropriate. So well, I, I went for the more, I went for the more wholesome answer there. <laughs> the altruistic, the altruistic answer. I, I Actually, try, I try. I, I want to put I'm, a, I'm a dad now, so I gotta, oh, I gotta, Keep my standards high. <laughs> I actually want to put a plug in for your book for uh, rural folks that you know might read that. It's like, oh, why would I read that? I already live in a rural town. It was it was interesting to me because it really made me think about my community and what makes us unique, and then just think about um, how lucky I am to live in a rural community like this. And so it makes you just start self analyzing a little bit. So I. I think this is a book for all rural people out there too, because it, it's really fascinating to start looking at your community in different ways or just start looking at it again. I think sometimes we just take a lot of things for granted or so you rural folks out there need to buy the book as well. 
Hey, I, I was going to say, I think it's a must must read. I think it is. Um, it's and I, and I mean this in the nice way. It's a read, it's an easy flow read, so you can read it in a day and knock it out, or an evening, or a weekend. And I think it's great. I think it does spur a lot of questions. I think Jared's right. I think rural America needs to jump all over it, uh, especially if you're looking at your county commission or your city leadership. Uh, very very much so. So uh, Matt, thank you for taking time this morning. I know you're going to head out and do some farm work today. And I appreciate your willingness to help and uh, be with us. And uh, thanks again. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Time. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the compliments. If anybody is interested in checking out more about the book, the website is howtothinksmall.com. Uh, but it was a pleasure uh, talking with you guys. And uh, if you're ever interested in having me back or having me on a different show, then you know how to find me. It sounds great. We definitely will. And push it out when we when we publish or we drop or add or whatever they say in the modern world. We will definitely hope you push it to your uh, readers as well. So thank you. Thank you. All right.